The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is God's word to us. Thank you so much, Emily. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline. And uh, I'm excited to open up these verses with you here in Genesis as we continue through our initial journey in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And we'll take a break for the season of Advent in December. We encourage you to invite friends and neighbors as we look and learn about Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And then at some point in the new year, we will take up again the remainder of Genesis. So pray with me over this text. Lord, we need your help as we look into your word. We pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Many of you are probably familiar with filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, who was once asked in an interview, if life is so purposeless, do you feel it's worth living? And Kubrick replied, the very meaninglessness of life forces a man to create his own meaning. As the child matures, he sees death and pain everywhere about him and begins to lose faith in the ultimate goodness of man. The most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it's hostile, but that it's indifferent. But if we can come to terms with this indifference and accept the challenges of life within the boundaries of death, our existence as a species can have genuine meaning and fulfillment. Kubrick concludes, however vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. Notice how Kubrick connects losing one's faith in the ultimate goodness of humanity with meaninglessness. And in contrast, in what I think is an underrated M. Night Shyamalan movie, Signs, Mel Gibson plays a former pastor who temporarily loses his faith after the death of his wife, but recovers it again after the rest of his family is miraculously preserved in an invasion. And in the film, Gibson's character says strikingly, people break down into two groups when they experience something lucky. Group number one sees it as more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign evidence that there's someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it as just pure luck, just a happy turn of chance. See, what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs? 
that sees miracles, or do you believe that people just get lucky? Here in Genesis 8 and 9, we'll see that we're offered three signs. In spite of the darkness of the human heart, three signs that there's still divine purpose and meaning in the universe. Three signs with the potential to point us forward to something better, with the potential to fill us with reverent fear. We're going to see in this text the sign of the altar, the sign of the bow, and the sign of Noah himself. But before we jump in, I have to name four things our passage touches on that are beyond the scope of our time together today. First, we can't unpack capital punishment. If you'd like resources on that topic, I'd be happy to share them with you. Neither can we address ways in which this passage serves as the foundation for the legitimacy of government and the need to respect and pray for our leaders as discussed in passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and 1 Timothy 2. Nor do we have time to address the way in which this passage has been co-opted throughout history to create any number of bizarre cults or offer some kind of depraved justification for racism or slavery or the inferiority of any ethnic group. If you get that out of this text, you're reading it wrong. And finally, we're not going to be able to address in detail the way in which this passage so potently flies in the face of much of the misguided population control rhetoric of the last 100 years. So now you might be wondering if there's anything left in these verses. There's plenty, I promise you. So let's look first at the sign of the altar, the sign of the altar. Look again at chapter 8, starting in verse 20. This is the first reference in the Bible to an altar. Noah builds to offer up prayer. And the aroma of Noah's prayer, represented by the sacrifice, verse 21, smells good to God. And what would have been striking for the first readers of this text so long ago is that this is in total contrast with other creation epics being written and retold in that day where the gods would actually become ravenous during the flood and then gather around the sacrifices offered to them on altars and devour them desperately. But Noah's God doesn't get hungry. And Noah's God doesn't need anything from Noah. In fact, he has gifts for Noah in response to Noah's prayer for blessing and protection. So look again at chapter 9. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 6. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So here the author echoes almost word for word the dominion mandate first handed down to Adam and Eve at the very beginning because he wants us to realize that this is recreation by the God who needs nothing and no one and yet continues in light of our fallenness to delight to share in the overflow of his eternal triune Love. This is God graciously saying, 
Let's begin again. There's a sense in which the flood was God hitting the fast forward button on the darkest chapter in human history and accelerating the inevitable chaos of human evil to its inevitable cataclysmic conclusion. This was where it was headed anyway. Our evil had destabilized the whole world, and so the flood was both just outcome and gracious remedy. So now God sets the metronome ticking again in chapter 8, verse 22, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night, and God promises these things shall not cease. Let's begin again. Notice that he says, he even gets into the granular details. Hey, I'm making my covenant not just with you, but even with the animals, with all created things. And so you're to kill animals to eat, but you're to kill them humanely. And you're to eat them without the blood because blood represents life. So God will eventually tell the people of Israel in Leviticus 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. So God says, don't eat the blood. I want to instill in you respect for the sacredness of life. I want to protect against the misuse and abuse of animals. And I want to point forward to my final solution for your sin. And if even animal life is sacred and worthy of respect, how much more human life as image bears. And so God lays down the law in verse five to protect human life from assault. And God wisely restrains the kind of chaotic pre-flood evil by warning of the consequences. Hey, a reckoning will be required. And these verses are not just history, but they're also a window into our own hearts of darkness. But the sign of the altar is here for us to point to the fact that God's at work one altar at a time to redeem us in our darkness. First here at Noah's altar. Then again in just a few chapters, memorably at Abraham's altar. Genesis 22, where God's gonna test Abraham's trust in the sign of the altar with yet another burnt offering. And in that chapter, Isaac and Abraham are hiking to the top of Mount Moriah because God has stunningly asked Abraham that if he trusts his promise of an heir, a long-awaited heir, even to the point of offering up his own son, Isaac then quietly asks his father why they're bringing wood but not a sacrifice. And Abraham quietly replies in careful language that points forward, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then God stops Abraham's hand before he can slay his son, and he offers up a ram caught in a thicket, and Abraham and Isaac walk back down the mountain together. And the sign of the altar continues to unfold through the story of Scripture until the author to the Hebrews describes the very last altar of all in Hebrews 10. Notice what he says. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Why? Because they can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being 
sanctified or made holy. The sign of the altar means that God will graciously continue to recreate, continue to give life, continue to fend off the death blow until his own son is prepared and ready to take the blow in our place. So God says, let's begin again. What that means is that the sign of the altar signals to us that God's recreation should fill our hearts with reverent fear. But we don't just have here in our text the sign of the altar, but also the sign of the bow, the sign of the bow. Look again at verses 8 through 17 of chapter 9. And in verse 9 of that chapter, God says, Behold, I myself establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, in fact, with every living creature. And in so doing, God makes a call back to Genesis 6.18, almost word for word, where he said to Noah before he sent him into the ark, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. You'll come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh. But here we have to stop and ask, what's a covenant? What's a covenant? We named it in our confession together. Now God names it here in our text. This is a significant word. It runs through all of scripture, but it's relatively opaque to us as modern Western readers. It's a word used in the Bible for all kinds of commitments people make to each other and how they make those commitments binding by taking an oath. Treaties between nations, marriages, loyalty agreements. And covenants are significant because they give people a way to knit themselves in relationship to somebody they're not already naturally tied to. You don't have to enter into a covenant with your parents, as you're reminded as we barrel towards Thanksgiving, for better or worse. You're naturally tied to each other already, but you get to pick your spouse, at least in the West. But today we tend to think in terms of contracts rather than covenants contracts rather than covenants. And people enter into contracts for the benefits that they each expect to get out of each other. While it might be a good way to do business, it's a terrible way to do relationship. So listen to this paraphrase of biblical scholar Elmer Martins as he helpfully contrasts modern Western contract relationships and ancient biblical covenant relationships. In a contract negotiation, Martins says, Arriving at a mutually satisfactory agreement is important. In a covenant, negotiation has no place. The greater in grace offers his help. The initiative is his. If negotiation describes a contract, gift describes a covenant. A ticking off of terms on a contract checklist can show how the contract's clearly been broken. A covenant, too, can be broken, but the point at which that happens is less clear because in a covenant, the focus isn't on a list of demands, one, two, three, but on a quality of intimacy. So perhaps the most concise way to sum up the difference between a contract and a covenant is to say that covenants are all about personal loyalty. At the heart of a covenant is a relationship between people that's defined by faithful, loyal love. So in these chapters, in the story of Noah and the flood narrative, the covenant actually comes before the ark. 
God's gracious rescue actually comes before Noah's obedient response. God sets his love on Noah first. Which is confusing because we read back in Genesis 6, 8, quote, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, but that's because the favor God finds is always the favor God first bestows. And every time God cuts a covenant, he throws down a sign. So with Abraham, it's circumcision. With Israel at Mount Sinai, it's the Sabbath. With Jesus in the new Israel, it's the communion cup that we'll drink here together today. But here in this passage, God throws down the sign of the bow. God hangs his bow in the sky. The Hebrew language uses the same word for both rainbow and bow as weapon. And the readers would have understood that. Not vertically as though aimed at an enemy, but horizontally as though hung up at rest. And we're not to assume that no one had ever seen a rainbow before this passage. Similarly, when God makes circumcision a sign of the covenant with Abraham, he actually brings new meaning to what was an existing cultural practice. So now God says, verse 14 of chapter 9, When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, that should serve as a sign to you. That bow stretching across a menacing storm sky should remind you that as the divine warrior, I've chosen to hang up my bow. Back in Genesis 6-6, the prompt for the flood is that God saw that every intention of man's heart was only evil all the time. But now God's saying he chooses to see and remember his covenant instead. God's saying, you don't have to fear the rain. It's here to water the earth, not execute judgment. In fact, in Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, God the Father sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God says, hey, I even water the crops of people who curse my name. It's a sign of my unearned favor rather than a sign of my judgment. Sin brings death, but God says, I bring and preserve life. The very possibility of existence, the preservation of of existence, even the wonderful predictability of existence. The sun came up this morning and none of us were surprised because of the kindness of God. And his grace has a rhythm and as God restores order out of the chaos waters, as he recreates here in the flood narrative, he invites all of his people to live within that rhythm. He sets the metronome ticking. Breathe in, breathe out. Pray, help, and pray, thanks. Wake and sleep. Work and Sabbath. Weep and laugh. Live by faith and die by faith. You're not gonna be able to see very far in front of you, but if you walk in my rhythms, trusting that the seemingly bad as well as the seemingly good both come from my hand, you'll start to learn the cadences of my grace as you practice. I'm with you. I'm bringing you home one beat at a time as you learn to keep in step with my spirit. So God's saying to Noah, I'm going to graciously grant regularity and predictability in the created order, even though your heart's still full of chaos and evil. Now, this would have been a profound contrast with the fertility gods that their neighbors 
worshipped. They would tragically cut themselves and burn their babies and perform exploitative sexual acts to try and win the favor of these so-called gods in the hopes that their crops would come in, in the hopes that they wouldn't starve to death in a subsistence society. And so God says, hey, let me offer up to you some scriptures of sanity to replace the superstitious reflex of your hearts. You can't magic me into making your crops grow. I send rain on the deserving and undeserving because that's who I am. My blessing goes first. It's meant to awaken gratitude. You think the blessing of the gods is in response to your cutting and your sacrifices? But, but I'm after your hearts, not your donations and your bribes. A man sat in my office many years ago and explained that he tried to do kind things for other people as often as possible because he said, quote, I believe everybody pays for what they do. So for too many people, God represents everything in their life that's been taken away from them. (laughs) Everything bad in their life must be God making them pay. So they build up a list of grievances against God, but these verses remind us that God actually represents everything good in their life. Everything they've been graciously given that they don't deserve but you're gonna need a new lens to see life that way. It's offered to us here in the sign of the bow. Mary Carr in her famous memoir, Lit, which describes her simultaneous experiences of getting sober and finding faith, writes of what it was like when that new lens was held in front of her eyes. She says, the spiritual lens is starting to rewrite the story of my life in the present, and I begin to feel like somebody snatched out of the fire, salvaged, saved. But when her sponsor told her she wasn't going to get sober until she prayed, her first prayer was filled with expletives and curses built up over a lifetime of suffering. We all tend towards superstition. We interpret the good things in our lives as a sign that God approves of our behavior. We interpret suffering and setbacks as a sign that God's punishing our behavior. But Genesis 8 and 9 push back against that kind of magical thinking. Seed time and harvest come every year because God gives, not because humanity behaves. So the sign of the bow points us toward giving thanks to God instead of trying to figure out how to manipulate and get things out of him. I have so many friends who are afraid to get married, afraid to bring children into an uncertain world. On what basis can you get your courage up to marry and bring children into this world? It's not the whole answer, but part of the answer is the blessing and preservation of God. Back in verse 22 of chapter 8, While the earth remains, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, even at the darkest hour when it seems like the train's about to go off the tracks and plunge off the mountain, my hand steadies the world and stays disaster. I've hung up my bow, so you're free to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If we rightly understand the sign of the bow, the sign of the bow means God's rhythms should fill our hearts with reverent fear. But not only do we see the sign of the altar and the sign of the bow, but third and finally, we see the sign in our passage of Noah himself, Noah himself. Look at verses 18 through 29 of chapter 9. I'll read starting in verse 
20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they didn't see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. If you've noticed, Noah has been silent through the entire flood narrative until the very end of chapter 9, this verse, verse 25, when he wakes up and pronounces a curse. And that's not an accident. Noah's silent in this story because he's a signpost. He's not meant to draw our attention to himself. And man, if, if you're paying attention to what we just read, these verses feel like a pretty hard left turn after what we've just read. So why does the author include this story in this narrative of God's blessing and recreation? Well, for the same reason that Genesis 3 comes after Genesis 1 and 2. For the same reason that the fall comes right on the heels of the good creation and commission to be fruitful found in Genesis 1 and 2 because that's our origin story. As many times as God wipes the slate clean and sets us back on our feet, just as many times we fall back into darkness. The tension of this story is the tension of my life and the tension of your life. God gives us what we don't deserve because it's who he is and we trample it underfoot and then we experience the shame and the destructive fallout that follows and we get to that point again and again where we stop and ask, what could possibly put an end to this seemingly endless cycle? The point of these verses is not that Noah had too much to drink, although scripture clearly condemns drunkenness in other places. Rather, the author is using elements of this true story in the life of Noah to take us back to the garden in Genesis 3 to remind us that sin always follows on the heels of God's creation and recreation. Now, because we're not quite sure what the sin of Ham was that triggers the curse, yet again, certain scholars have indulged in a lot of creativity, read all sorts of wild things into what Ham saw and told in verse 22 of chapter 9, accusing Ham of inappropriate relations with his mother, inappropriate relations with his father, or even the castration of his father. But at the simplest level, the main reason why this passage is so opaque to us is because it would have been so clear and obvious to its first readers 1,500 years ago. So if you want to learn more, we're not going to get into it here, but John Walton in his commentary on Genesis offers what I think is the most likely of all the speculative explanations but even he admits it's not clear enough to be decisive. But whatever Ham's sin was, it's clear that he chose to see in a sinful way and take something that was not his and speak to his brothers about it in a sinful way, reminding us of the garden. So setting all that aside, the question we have to ask is, what's Noah a signpost for? What's the sign of Noah himself? Well, as you begin to read the New Testament, it becomes abundantly clear as the authors again and again 
take up the sign of Noah himself and explain to us that the story of Noah is saying to us that the true and final flood is still to come. And we're to learn from Noah's reverent fear and climb into the true and better ark. So the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews 11 can say, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by, notice, faith. Similarly in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 24, Matthew uses the days of Noah to illustrate total preoccupation with everyday affairs. In the words of one scholar, the people of both Noah's day and Jesus' day are dangerously engrossed in the routines of another day, the routines of another year, so that awareness and openness to Jesus' sudden return and judgment are deleted. The sign of Noah himself is that Noah takes God's warning to heart when it would be tempting to blow it off. To say like the scoffers in 2 Peter 3, Where's the promise of his coming? (laughs) I mean, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But the sign of Noah says, don't get it twisted. The bow is a sign of God's restraint, not a sign of him going soft on moral evil. (laughs) The bow is a sign of God's patience, not his permissiveness. He's patient. He's not impotent. So Peter continues, verse 8 of 2 Peter 3, Don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, thousand years is a day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowless, but is, notice, patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it, like Adam and like Noah, they will be exposed. God's kindness, Scripture says, melts our hearts and makes us climb into Christ. But God's warnings sober our hearts and also make us climb into Christ. One scholar highlights how the author of Genesis is careful to highlight a bunch of parts in the story to make sure that we don't miss that Noah is essentially just a second Adam. Both men walk with God. Both rule the animals, Adam by naming, Noah by preserving. Both work the ground. Both stumble through the fruit of the vine, Adam by eating the fruit, Noah by drinking. And then both men are clothed as an act of kindness. And the author wants us to see that Noah's not the answer. He's just another Adam. And just like you and me, who are just another Adam, he can only participate in the curse and pass on the curse. I remember as a young man thinking of brokenness in my family of origin and spotting some of it in myself and wondering what right I had to get married or bring kids into the world. I felt like a ticking time bomb, and there's a sense in which I wasn't wrong. (laughs) I'm participating in the curse, I'm passing on the curse. I can name the curse, but I'm powerless to neutralize the curse. And it wasn't until God's Spirit spoke to me 
And I know it was the Lord because I wasn't smart enough to think this. Hey, you're right. <laughs> but the difference between you and these people in your family of origin that are scaring you off of marriage and child rearing is that you repent. We can all name the curse, but we know we're powerless to neutralize the curse. It wasn't until the last Adam finally came that the curse could be broken, that our shame could be covered. So that's why Jesus willingly submitted himself up to being stripped naked and mocked by crowds. Crowds who were shameless enough to say to him as he hung there in his agony, save yourself. (laughs) Why don't you save yourself? The most Ironic mockery ever emitted by the lips of sinful humans because that's precisely what Adam and Noah and every one of us can't do, save ourselves. That's why he was hanging there. So Jesus drank the flood waters of God's just wrath so that we might be hidden in him. Jesus was consumed completely on the altar to satisfy the justice of God so that we might receive the mercy of God and be hidden in him. Jesus shed his blood to forge a new and better covenant that would remove not only the penalty, but even the power, the very presence someday of sin. The sign of Noah himself, rightly understood, means that God's coming wrath should fill our hearts with reverent fear. And ultimately, in closing, that's what all three signs in our passage are pointing us towards. Reverent fear. And it's easy to get it twisted because Scripture constantly talks about the fear of the Lord. We tend to assume that that describes a threat that coerces obedience out of fear of punishment. (laughs) Hebrews 11.7 says Noah was motivated by reverent fear. He was motivated by reverent fear to accept a gracious offer of rescue in the face of certain destruction. And scripture insists on using this word fear even though there's a big risk we're gonna misunderstand it as though we're to be afraid of God because there's a physical, tangible component to this kind of reverence at all. A person filled with the fear of God trembles not because they're afraid of God's punishment, but they shake because they're so overcome with worshipful awe at his gracious offer of undeserved rescue. This is why a groom can begin to shake as his bride comes down the aisle. For me? You're covenanting with me? The simultaneous awareness of unworthiness and astonishment at the prospect of being united to the beloved can make a strong man Shake. Relief and joy and overwhelming gratitude all get bound up together and can make you physically shake and come undone. Reverent fear. So the sign of Noah himself means that judgment came. Judgment's coming again. But the invitation for you is to behold and be filled with reverent Fear when you realize that God has already prepared himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we're filled with reverent fear 
as we consider your sacrifice. Meet us at this table. Raise our affections to you and astonish us all over again with all your good gifts that none of us deserve because of Jesus. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.